If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. This summer, we are going to set our attention on the prophecies of this incredible man, Isaiah. I actually think that for most of us, even though Isaiah is much closer to us in terms of timeline, I think it's harder for us to delve into and understand the people in Isaiah's time than it even is the people at the very beginning of creation in the time of Adam and Eve or Noah. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lack of familiarity. Last summer, I preached through the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, which are the difficult ones. Those are the ones about judgment, primarily. It is about God judging the people of Israel, as well as all of the other surrounding nations. It is oracle after oracle after oracle of why God is going to pour out his wrath on these people in various ways. And if you'd like to hear any of those sermons, they're all available on our church website. But if you were to read through the book of Isaiah and you were to just go from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through, you would notice there is a radical shift between chapter 39 and chapter 40. The first 39 chapters are all about judgment, but this section centers on grace. This is where God describes himself and defines himself in perhaps some of the greatest ways in the entire Bible. He does so clearly and he does so systematically. These chapters, I believe, contain some of the most powerful statements about God found anywhere in Scripture. So please join me now as I pray that God would use not only this sermon, but all of the sermons this summer from Isaiah to help us and encourage us and strengthen us and teach us about our God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that we are able to worship you today, that we are able to worship you through singing, we are able to worship you through the reading of Scripture, we are able to worship you through giving, but Lord, we are also able to worship you at this time, Lord, I am able to worship through, through the proclamation of your word, but many are able to worship you through the hearing of your word, and God, we pray that this would be a time of worship through hearing. Lord, we pray that you would give strength to those who are here to hear the word. By your Holy Spirit, open the ears of everyone in this room so they might not only hear with physical ears, but have what Jesus called ears to hear that we might actually respond appropriately to your word. God, we ask that this would be an encouraging time. If there are any who are weak or exhausted or downtrodden, Lord, we pray this would be a, an encouraging sermon for them. And if there is anyone here who is in arrogance or proud or worshiping something other than you, God, we pray that today would be a day where you would reveal yourself to them, break them down, and show them that you alone are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A.W. Tozer famously once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he's absolutely correct. Your understanding of God is your most important defining trait. Your worship is fully dependent upon what you believe about God. If you believe that God is weak, small, incapable, or limited, then your entire life is going to reflect that. Why rely on a God who can't help you? Why pray to a God that may not hear you? Why would you obey a God that doesn't know about or even care about what you're doing? This chapter is brimming with truth about God. It is so full about truth about God so that it might cut away at your misunderstanding. It is here, divinely inspired, to help reshape your misconceptions about what God is like for the purpose 
of changing your understanding so that you might love and follow him correctly. This chapter is so full that we could easily spend the entire summer in this one chapter. But instead, what we're going to do is attempt to go through the monumental task of covering all 31 verses this morning. And in order to do that, what I'm going to do is simply focus in on seven attributes that God reveals about himself in this chapter. We are going to see that God is a comforting God. We are going to see that he is a speaking God, and that he is a gentle God, and that he is a powerful God, and a living God, and a ruling God. And we are going to see finally that he is an empowering God. We begin by learning that God is a comforting God. God, starting in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles open, look there with me to chapter, one, uh, chapter 40, verse 1, which starts, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In order to understand comfort, you first have to understand the affliction. In order to understand exactly why God and how God is trying to comfort the people here, you must understand Israel's distress. Isaiah has just spent the bulk of the last 39 chapters telling Israel that they are about to experience the disciplining hand of the Lord because of their idolatry and their wickedness. And both the northern and southern kingdoms were repeatedly and brutally condemned, and they were told... Without any qualifications, you are going to go into exile. You are going to experience judgment. But I will also bring you out. Now, God is speaking through Isaiah to say to them, When you come back, this is what you need to know. Your discipline is not going to last forever. I'm going to bring you back. And when I do, you need to follow me and expect specific things. This word was designed to comfort the people as they awaited the fulfillment of God's promise. Have you ever been in distress or discouraged and somebody tried to comfort you? Have you ever had somebody try to comfort you and do it poorly and you walked away feeling like, man, I feel worse now than I did before? Uh, well, thankfully, there are times when people will come alongside of you and they will comfort you well. Uh, Good Friday was the last time that our former church, my former church, Redeeming Grace Fellowship, ever met together as a body. And when we did, I was thinking through that entire service how God had done so many great things there. And I had thought about how I had poured my blood, sweat, and tears quite literally into that place for five years. So it went from nothing to not even being able to fit into that little building any longer. And I was preaching us out that night, and I began to feel so many mixed emotions. And as I was preaching, my voice began to wobble, and um, I began to get a little bit more emotional than usual. And one of the little girls who was in the room took notice. She was just coloring a page, I think, and she realized something's wrong. And um, she realized that I was very, very sad. So at the end of that service, she went home and she decided to comfort me by making me a note, by coloring me a picture, which you can see up here on the screen. It just says, Jesus loves you, Pastor Caleb. That's from Amaris Lee. She did a great job. 
And I was so blessed and encouraged. And yes, I was actually comforted. But how did she comfort me? She comforted me because she knew I was sad by pointing me to the fact that Jesus loves me. Notice that's exactly what God does here as well. He does not just say to them, oh, get over it. You're going to be through this. No problem. There's light on the other side of the tunnel. Just work harder. Just kind of live through it and eventually this pain will go away. No, he doesn't do that. Instead, he revealed that there is glory coming. Glory of God himself is going to be revealed. And how is that going to be done? How is it going to be seen? The answer of that is very murky and shadowy here in Isaiah 40. He doesn't explain it very clearly. He just says there is a time coming when all of those rocky ways are going to be made plain and flat. All of those places that are low are going to be elevated. And for us, we're like, what in the world does that even mean? Well, in those days, if a king was going to travel to a town, in order for him to do that, before he would ever go, he didn't walk, so he had to have the ground leveled for his chariot or for his cart. He did not walk, so he had to have someone go out there and create what they called a highway for him. A highway was simply a way that you could travel with something with wheels. And here what he's saying is, there is a king coming, and there is a highway that's going to be made for him. But even there, we say, well, what is that going to look like, and how is that going to be fulfilled? Well, we actually have the answer very plainly given to us in the New Testament. So for those who are going through the Bible reading plan with us, you will have just recently read Matthew chapter 3, where it says, in fact, these very words from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. And it says them in reference to John the Baptist. He is the one who would come and declare the coming of the Lord. He is the one who came to make the path ready, to level it out so that the king would indeed come. In fact, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all quote these verses, and they declare John the Baptist is the one who came to prepare the way. So God was coming to reveal his glory, and he was going to do that through a person. He was going to do that through his own son, Jesus Christ. So how is it that God says, comfort my people? He says, comfort Israel, telling them the Savior is coming. Well, now we're on the other side of that, and we say, comfort my people. He has come. Jesus is here. He has descended from heaven, and he was born to be among us. He has lived as one of us. He was all, every in every way like us, except for one, that he was without sin. We have comfort in that. We have comfort in the fact that Jesus died for sinners like you and me, and that he rose to be our Savior. If you're here today and you don't know what that means, or you have not yet believed that, then I call on you now to find comfort in the only place you can find it. There is no comfort in the world. Our God is a comforting God, but there is no way for him to give us comfort outside of Christ. Even the wealthiest and most powerful and most famous people in the world are often depressed and discouraged and sad and lonely. And why? That's because no amount of this world's goods could ever do one thing to actually give comfort. How many times have you heard people say, I would give all of the world just to have this one thing. Nothing in this world can actually console a broken heart. The world can commiserate. I'm there with you, buddy. Life is hard. The world can do that, but it can't give comfort. 
And it's for this reason that God is described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 as the God of all comfort. There is no comfort apart from him. Without him, everything is despair. So if you are in this room and you are depressed or spiritually discouraged or emotionally damaged or your soul is downcast, look to Christ. See the promised one of our salvation and let your heart rejoice. He is the promise of comfort for all who believe. The second attribute of God that we're going to see here in this text is found starting in verse 6, that our God is a speaking God. He is a communicating God. Follow along in your own copy of scriptures in verse 6, which says, A voice says, Cry! And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God informs Isaiah that he has a very specific job. He says, cry out, cry out these words. And you see Isaiah's limitations here. He, he re responds with this question of inadequacy, and he says, what am I supposed to say? It's like... Isaiah took inventory of his vocabulary and his knowledge and his personal wisdom, and he said, what am I supposed to tell these people? I've got nothing. How am I supposed to comfort them? And God told him exactly what to, to say. He said, give a vivid illustration that will allow the people to see who they are in light of who I am. He described the people as grass of a field. In Israel, uh, their climate is a little different than ours. In Israel, there is a rainy season, and after that rainy season, the grass will populate, it will grow, it will become very green and beautiful and lush. But then the heat comes on, and just a few weeks later, unless you are caring for that, or unless it is nearby a stream, all of that grass withers and turns yellow, and it dies. And so what he's saying is, look at that grass out there. Do you see how quickly it's here, and then how quickly it's gone? That's you guys. That's who you are. And this is how God chooses to comfort his people. You're like grass. You are quickly going to fade. God told Isaiah, tell them that you, surely, the people are grass. You are temporary. You are finite. Your life is a brief vapor. It is rapidly going to dissipate. But in contrast, he says, but every word of the Lord that our God speaks, it is eternal. The word of the Lord will stand forever, meaning that it is unshakable. It cannot fail. This means that God's promises are trustworthy. Nothing that he ever says will fall to the ground. Now, it should be amazing to us that God speaks to us at all. God is so much greater than we are. What is man that he is mindful of us? But not only does he speak, but he speaks truth that we can bank on. His word will never fall short. It will never fail. The reason that we are studying the Bible this morning is because his word is unfailing, eternally accurate, and self-revelation of God. There is nothing else that I can say to you that will help you. Everything else that I have to say that is derived from my own knowledge or intelligence or wisdom will get you nowhere. But we come to the word of God because his word stands forever. We have a God who speaks. We also learn from Isaiah 40 that Jehovah God is a gentle God. Look to verse 9. He says, go up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now God commands Isaiah here to climb up as high as he can go so that he might declare as loudly as he can and as publicly as possible, shout aloud, herald this good news, but what is he supposed to declare? Three times in two sentences, he says, declare, behold your God. But what are they supposed to observe about him? What are they supposed to see in him? In the Old Testament, the term the arm of the Lord is often used to speak about God's power. We see that as often used in relation to God's deliverance of the people from Egypt in the Exodus. He will say that I brought you out with my mighty, might, or my mighty right hand or my mighty right arm. Here when he says that, that is often speaking about God proving that in an arm wrestling match with Egypt, they have no ability to stop him. He will always win. But in the book of Isaiah, we begin to see this term, the arm of the Lord, take on personification. It's not just a concept. It is God himself. It is a person. Here in verse 10, we see that the might of the Lord will come and rule in this place here on earth. This is not speaking about abstract authority. It is speaking about a person. God himself will come to be king. But what will this rule look like? He describes his kingship as a gentle ruler, shepherding his people with tenderness. And this promise saw its fulfillment in the arrival of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the good shepherd. That Psalm 23 that you've been singing for a thousand years, that's about me. I am the good shepherd. He is the one who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you're here as an unbeliever, I want you to know that you can come to Christ. He will never turn away anyone who humbly comes in repentance. He will not treat you according to your actions. He will not do to you what you deserve. But he will pick you up, and he will carry you close to himself. He will treat you as his own. This is how we who know Christ are to understand him. Sometimes Christians who have followed the Lord, who are pursuing the Lord still think of God as this guy who's continually looking for ways to punish you, looking for ways to find fault in you so that he might harm you. But God is desirous for your good. He is carrying you close to himself. He does not describe himself here uh, just as a comforting and speaking God and just as a gentle God, though. He also speaks about himself as a powerful God. What is power? We understand power as a combination of strength and authority. It's measured by a lack of limitations. But we are so weak and we are so finite and we are so powerless that the only way that we can measure our own strength is by way of displacement. I mean, think about it. The current strongest man in the entire world is named Oleski Novikov, and he gained the label of the strongest man in the world when he lifted deadlifted 1,185 pounds. Um, now, David, that's a lot of weight, right? Dave Balston, he's our deadlifter here in the church. Can you do that? 
close. Right, the, the closest person we have to the strongest man in the world is right there. But there is no one else in this room that can get anywhere close to this. In fact, this guy is known for setting the world record for curling a 220 pound dumbbell 11 straight times without stopping. That is insanity to us. That he can displace and move in this physical creation these little things that weigh a lot of weight. The, uh, th this is an insane thing to think that this is how we measure power, by physical ability or strength. The other side of the coin is authority. How many people do you answer to? Are you actually in charge? Do you have any checks and balances making sure that you're doing what you're supposed to? God is going to make this incredible declaration about his power, that he is both infinitely strong and that he has absolute authority. Follow along in verses 12 through 17, and let's behold the power of God. He writes, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are, are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. If you were to line up all the nations of the world together, is what he's saying. If you took all of the people in all of the armies of all of the world and you were to aim them at God, what could you do? Nothing. If you took all of the jets and all of the submarines and all the nuclear warheads and you were to attempt to attack God, there is nothing that all of the people in all of the history of the world could do to even make God feel it. He is powerful in ways that we can't even comprehend. He is strong. I love how he describes him here by saying he measures the waters in the palm of his hand. It's like you think that ocean is big and dangerous. You haven't even seen a portion of it. You just stand on the edge and you can barely see to the, you can't even see a few miles into it. And he says, I take that whole thing and I just put it here in my hand. You think that's big? Well, you know what I do? I just take my measuring rod out and I measure the whole of the universe. Now, I'm not going to go into one of those, do you know how big the universe is and how small you are kind of things? But you are tiny in comparison to the fact that this little world that we live on is just a small part of a massive universe that God has breathed out. And he says, you know what? With that whole universe, I just, I measure it in a span. Now, you might not know what a span is, but in the Bible, it often uses this term. A span is the difference either between here and here or between here and here if your fingers are outstretched. Interestingly, that's the same Length. So it depends on who you ask, but that's the same thing. God says, you know what? The universe, this huge thing that, that you can never find the end of, yeah, I just do this, and I see the whole thing. That's, that's my universe that I made. He is powerful. He is strong. But he doesn't just stop there. Notice he says, I take counsel from nobody. No one tells me what to do. I have all wisdom in myself, and I answer to no one, because there is no one higher to whom I must report. His strength is inexhaustible, and his authority is insurmountable. Now, the question is, do you actually believe this, or do you imagine that God has limitations? 
Do you consider him to be altogether like you? You have a lot of limitations, and when we imagine God, we have a difficult time imagining him differently than we are. Do you believe that he is unable to help you in your weakness? If you have small God theology, then you are going to struggle with fear and with joylessness and with doubt. But if you believe in a big God, you believe that he is the God that we read about right here, then you will be able to trust in him. If you believe in a small God, you will imagine that your will is greater than his will. Or you may imagine that your problems are outside of the scope of his abilities. But you would be so wrong. Our God is a powerful God. So he says, behold, three times he says, behold your God and see his strength, see his authority. Our God is a powerful God. Isaiah's prophecy continues and explains to us that not only is he powerful, he's a living God. Anyone who follows sports knows about trash talk. It's the art of propping up yourself and putting down your opponent. The problem is that most of the time that people are trash talking, what they're doing is they're just arrogantly speaking in ways that they can't back up when they step on the court or the field. So they say all of these amazing things and then they get out there and somebody blocks their shot immediately. In fact, I, I love watching people who have those big mouths lose. Uh, there's just a part of me that thinks that's hilarious. They can't back it up when the game is actually being played. One of the things that you can expect to see various times throughout the summer is divine trash talk. God is going to dismantle the foolishness of these false gods. He's not doing so arrogantly. He's doing so accurately. He is going to tell the people of Israel, look at your gods. They are unable to help you. Look at your gods. They cannot save you. They are just wood and stone. Maybe there are other things like money and power and fame. Those things are dead and they cannot help you. But not me, he says. I am alive. Sometimes people speak about God as some kind of a, a, a nebulous power or force. Think Star Wars, like this, this force exists in the universe and we can tap into it. God is not like that. He is a God with a mind. He is alive. He is active. He is a person who has thoughts and intentions. Look to verses 18 through 20. It says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Now here we see the trash talk. He says, A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot, and he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Wow, you think this thing is your ruler? You just go chop down a tree, and you, you carve a face into it, and you think that thing is your boss? That thing can't even move. God would make examples like this of the idols over and over and over, and here he does so by saying, Look, there's the rich kind of idol that's all covered in gold and has silver chains on it. And there's the poor kind of idol of the guy who can only afford a piece of wood from the wood scrap pile. But either way, these are worthless, helpless gods that cannot help you. He is mockingly expressing their pathetic limitations. They've been made by the hands of an earthly creator. They can't move. They can't think. They can't hear. They can't help you. God says, do not compare me to these things. Our God is a living God. He is, a, he is greater than any idol that we could craft. So let me ask you, what idols are you worshiping today? Perhaps you do have idols in your home that are carved and have faces on them. Perhaps you light incense to them. I know that that still continues to exist. Those gods cannot help you. They are worthless. But I don't think that's the gods that most of us in this room tend to 
gravitate toward. Instead, our idols are various forms of self-worship. Are you a collector trying to fill your emptiness with worshiping at the altar of consumerism? You just have to fill your garage with more and more and more stuff that you know you'll never use. Are you filled with lust and are you worshiping at the altar of pornography? Are you filled with laziness and worshiping at the altar of entertainment? Are you empty and worshiping food with gluttonous habits? Are you bitter and angry and you are worshiping yourself by displays of wrath towards the people in your life and towards display of anger on social media as you type relentlessly at night? There are billions of idols that you might choose to bow before, but not one of them is able to satisfy your soul. Not one of them is able to give you joy. Not one of them has power to save. They can do nothing because they have no life and they give no life. But our God is a living God. Turn and trust him. Find your satisfaction in him. Worship him and him alone. Now notice that Isaiah does not let his foot off the gas pedal here. He just continues by explaining that God is not only alive, but he is also the ruler over all things. Verse 21 and following says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Every single election cycle is another opportunity to take gauge of your heart. Who do you really believe is in charge? Christians should absolutely vote, and we should absolutely vote for people that will put in place the best biblical principles that we have options from, but what is your heart like during those months leading up to those elections? What is your heart like before you go and vote? Do you really believe that the person who is in the Oval Office has the final say about your life and your destiny? Or do you actually believe the words of Isaiah? God's throne is not threatened by earthly rulers. Like a chessboard, he lays all of these pieces in place. Consider Pilate when he was putting Jesus on trial. He became angry at one point, and he barked at Jesus. He says, do you refuse to speak to me? And I just, I, I, I like to imagine the inflection on these words. Do you, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate says. And you see the arrogance he, ha he has. He says, do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And you refuse to speak to me? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. Who's really in charge here? It's not who's in the governor's seat or who's in the White House. It's not who's ruling this nation in any of the judgeships around our country. No, that is not who is actually ruling here. God is on the throne, and there is nothing that can shake that. 
Don't let your earthly experiences fool you into the faulty notion that the influencers or the politicians of our day are actually in charge of you. You have a higher king whose throne is above the circle of the earth. Now, a lot of what he's saying in this text, we're not going to delve deeply into, but a lot of it has to do with the makeup of a courtroom. And here he says, you think my throne is down there with you guys? No, 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 no. My throne is above the circle of the earth entirely. I like how Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 through 35 says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Or same thing, just in a different wording, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. With all of these things, we see that God truly is in charge. And as we were reading earlier, he speaks of these other kings, these other princes. He says, and what are they compared to me? I am the one who set them up. I am the one who will take them down. I call them out in due time. With all of these things that we've considered about the power of God and the authority of God and the strength of God and the sovereign rule of God, it should result in the realization that you are very small. You are absolutely tiny and finite. If all of the nations are like a drop in the bucket, who are you? But the good news is that our God is also an empowering God. Follow along as we read starting in verse 27. He says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This section begins by God asking Israel a question. He says, why are you saying that your way is hidden from me? Why are you acting like I don't know what's going on here or that I'm not involved in what's taking place? The people had begun to act as though God didn't know or care about them any longer. Now, although this was a prophecy for a specific people and a specific time in Israel's history, this same question is one that many of God's people have spoken in every generation. When trials abound and difficulties multiply in your life, you look around and you ask, how could God let this happen to me? What is he doing in heaven? Why won't he remove my pain and make my life more comfortable? Now, we began this chapter with the command to comfort God's people. And God has been comforting them with every word in this chapter. All of these attributes that God is revealing about himself is a form of comforting his people. He is offering us the only thing that can possibly produce the comfort in our hearts that we need as struggling believers. It is one thing for God to reveal that he does not grow weary and that he never becomes faint. That's one thing, and that's a good thing to know. But it it is an entirely different thing for God to say that he will then give you that strength, which is how he closes out this chapter. God has declared with numerous metaphors that he is a speaking and gentle and powerful and living and ruling God. But he is telling them this so that they might find comfort for their souls and so they might find power to live their lives. 
Look again at verse 29. He says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Do you realize he is talking about you? Do you realize that you are in this text if you are a believer? The reality is that you have no might. You have no power. You have no ability to carry out the calling of the Christian life. It is not just hard. It is impossible. You can't do it if you were doing it on your own. The things that God demands of you in Scripture are literally impossible. If you are trying to do this in your own strength, you will fail. Unlike most of those who are more powerful than you, God doesn't overlook you. Ray Ortland writes in his commentary, God is not too great to bother with us. He is too great to overlook us. God is desirous to lift you up. And when you finally realize that you are weak, it is then that God alone makes you strong. This weekend, the youth group had a lock-in. I'm so thankful that I am out of the stage of doing lock-ins and that I have passed that now along to Gideon. He said uh, the morning after, he said, I don't know how many of those I have in me. He's a young man. And even younger than him are those teenagers. So I came in the next morning. I was here. I was working on a few things. And some of the teenagers were still here. These kids seem like they have endless energy. But I walked into the room, and they were absolutely dragging. They had nothing left in the tank. They just needed to go home and sleep it off for a day. Even youth shall grow faint and weary, it says. Young men will fall exhausted, verse 30. But they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Notice that there is a contrast being made here. There is this transitional word. He says, now they're going to get weary, they're going to grow faint, but there's a distinction here contrasting that there are those who will renew their strength. Who is it? Not those that just can figure it out. Not just those who can work harder. Not those that can just eventually achieve their goals. No, those people who just continue to spin their wheels will become exhausted. I think there are a lot of people who are exhausted in this room. I think there are people who are exhausted in their sin struggles because they're trying to conquer sin in their own tactics but without the power of Christ. I think there are people in this room who are exhausted because of painful circumstances that have become too difficult to bear alone. I think there are people in this room who have actually become exhausted because of ministry. You are doing good things and you are absolutely worn out. You are completely spent. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, and he says, Do not grow weary of doing good. That can happen. What are spiritually exhausted people supposed to do? It tells us, wait upon the Lord. I don't think we're good at waiting, but I also don't think we're good at understanding what this word wait means. Here, when we think of waiting, like I don't know if you've ever been waiting for somebody and you're just sitting there looking at your watch, you're counting the minutes, you're tapping your toe, you're thinking, how long is it going to take for this person to actually do what they said they were going to do? Or how long is this person who's speaking right now going to keep talking? You're, you're counting, you're waiting for something to happen or something to conclude. That's how we think of the word wait, but that's not what this word actually means in Hebrew. This word wait actually means to have hope and trust that in God's timing, he will do the right thing. If you wait on the Lord, it means rely on him, lean on him, trust in him, rely in his power to get you through. The good news is he is never going to send you to accomplish a difficult task by yourself. He will send you to do things that you cannot do, but he will also go with you to accomplish it. This is why Isaiah concludes the prophecy with this threefold metaphor of Christian strength. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up 
with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We can do this because our God is a comforting God and because he is a speaking God and a gentle God and a powerful God and a living God and a ruling God and he does all of these things and uses all of those things to empower his people to serve this God. So wait upon the Lord and he will renew your strength. Let me pray. Our God, we look at this and we see that you are great and mighty. You are powerful and you are kind. God, we pray that as we have come and heard this text today, that you would cause us to be more and more infatuated with Jesus Christ. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, that they would hear these things about the Lord, they would repent, and they would believe. And God, for those of us who know you but have been treading water in the Christian life, struggling to get traction, struggling to move forward, struggling because we are exhausted, God, I pray that you would renew our strength. Give us the ability to worship you faithfully and worship you well. Lord, we pray all of these things knowing that you are good and kind. In Jesus' name we pray.